Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. I hope you found John chapter 16. I'd like to read with you uh, from verses 16 to the end of the chapter. John chapter 16, beginning at verse 16. Jesus said, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because, of her, because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Gracious Lord, I do pray along with my brother Ryan, that you would indeed be our teacher, our preacher this very moment. Do not let us hear one word from man. Let us hear only the word from the Son of Man. Holy Spirit, come and breathe life into us afresh and anew that we might be pointed towards Christ. And Heavenly Father, we pray that you would deign to show us the way that we might glorify you as Jesus did. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as many of you know from reading John's gospel, no doubt many times, John's gospel is essentially or can essentially be divided into two parts. You have John 1 through 11 and then 12 more or less to the end. 
John 1 through 11 covers a number of years in Jesus' ministry. And there's this, it's like there's something that we're reading very quickly through the life of Christ. When you get to John 12, however, everything slows right down. And from John 12 to the very end is really, or just about to the end, is everything is in slow motion. You have essentially just a few days that are described. So you go from several years in 11 chapters to several days in a few chapters. And chapter 12 then begins a whole new section in John, but chapter 13 really is the beginning of what I might call the final scene in John's gospel. It's the final scene, it's the, it's the beginning, if you will, of the end. In John chapter 13, we, we know that the end is coming for a number of reasons. Jesus himself, for example, in John, John chapter 13 and verse one says, or John tells us about Jesus, that his hour had come. Jesus' hour had come. Also in John chapter 13 and verse one, we read, he loved them, that is disciples, he loved them to the end. The end, yes, the end. Why? Because we are arriving at the end. We also notice in John chapter 13 that Satan is present. We read there in John chapter 13 and verse two, during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, and then he carries on with the narrative. And then in verse 27 of chapter 13, we read that after he had taken the morsel, that is Judas, Satan entered into him. Then also in John chapter 13, Jesus says in verse three, all things have been given into my hands. And then in chapter 13, verses four and 12, it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus is there washing his disciples' feet. And what is the one detail or one of the details that John wants to highlight? Well, John highlights there in verse four, he says, Jesus took off his garments and he washed the feet and made his disciples clean. And then he put on his garments again. I can't help but wonder if this is not a, a visual for his disciples to see how Jesus Christ, Son of God, dwelling with the Father, right next to him, as it were, took off the garments of his glory, that he might come and be born a baby and might live a life in the middle of all of us sinful humanity, and that there he would do his work to sanctify and cleanse us, and when he was done, he would then take upon those garments of glory once again. Jesus is saying here in John 13, it is the beginning of the end. This is the final scene. And so when John 14 begins, Jesus essentially his last sermon. It's a sermon to a very small crowd, a crowd of really by then only 11. Judas has already departed. And Jesus' last sermon is preparing the disciples for his death, for his resurrection and beyond, his ascension and beyond which is what brings us to John chapter 16. Here we are in the midst and the thick of what Jesus is saying to his disciples as he is seeking to prepare them for the fact that he will die in just hours, but that he will rise again. And in verse 16, of course, that's where we read, a little while and you will be see me no longer, and a little while and you will see me. Now from our post-resurrection perspective, where we sit right now, having all of the gospels, all of the Bible, the whole New Testament in front of us, that makes sense, we get it. He is speaking of the fact, of, he's speaking of Easter. Jesus is saying, dear brothers, Friday is upon us, but don't worry, Sundays are coming and I'm gonna be in church. Here he is, he's, he's telling them what is going to take place, but they, from their pre-death and resurrection, pre-resurrection perspective, they don't quite understand. 
But what amazes me, I think, most in, in this whole interaction here is, is not so much that the disciples don't understand. I get that. It's difficult for them on that side of the resurrection to really fully appreciate what Jesus was about to do. What amazes me is that Jesus has been preparing his disciples throughout his entire ministry, but especially now here in this portion of John's gospel, for his death and the way in which he would die. And as he's preparing them, note what he says in verse 32 at the very end of chapter 16 that we read. He says, behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. I think that verse 32 of John 16 has to be among the most poignant statements, perhaps even the most difficult statement in the whole gospel, especially for Jesus to make. Jesus is telling his disciples, in the moment of my greatest need, in the moment when there I am and I will be suffering for you, giving my life for you, you're going to run away. You'll scatter. You'll go back to the places you call home in this city. You will disappear. You will leave me alone. It's tremendously ironic, isn't it? Throughout the Gospels, we read time and time again how, how Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and he, and he quotes or he cites or he alludes to Ezekiel 34 and to other passages in the Old Testament where the problem in Israel, one of the problems in Israel is that they are sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus is angry at the Pharisees and he challenges the Pharisees because you Pharisees are supposed to be the shepherds and yet you have abandoned the sheep for your own interests. Irony of irony here in John 16, 32. Jesus, the true shepherd, the good shepherd, the one who has come and will finally lead his people, his sheep, into his kingdom. He comes and all the sheep scatter. We have exactly the opposite problem. Initially, the problem was all the sheep are gone and all we have are, all the shepherds are gone and all we've got are sheep. And now the true shepherd comes and he's saying the time is coming, the hour is here when all of you will scatter. And all of this despite their professed allegiance. If you think back in your mind to chapter 13, you'll know this either from John's gospel or in its other versions in the synoptics. When Jesus is speaking of the fact that he is going to die and he's going away and this, they will, they will, there will be those who will come to seek his life, Peter, the bold one, he speaks up and he says in, in John 13, 37, I will lay down my life for you. I will lay down my life. Jesus, it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter how bad it gets. It doesn't matter how dark it gets. Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. This is just hours before Jesus' trial and death. This is perhaps even just minutes before Jesus says this. And so here are these men gathered around him and Jesus knows that they will run away, that he will be left alone. And note that there is a difference between feeling lonely and alone. You can feel lonely in the middle of the night when you're sitting there on your own, in your room, no one else is around. And the reason no one else is around is well, it's the middle of the night. Nobody else wants to be around. They're all asleep, as you should be. But there you are, and you're, you're awake, you can't sleep, and you, you feel lonely. No one else is there. But that's different than feeling alone. What Jesus is speaking of here is a time when people could be with him, should be with him, but they choose not to be with him. 
The world, his disciples, everyone is about to turn their backs on the one who is the true shepherd of Israel. Absolutely amazing, therefore, that Jesus, knowing this, responds and continues to deal with his disciples with such love and compassion. I wonder how you would feel if you knew ahead of time, or perhaps after the fact, either way, you were counting on your closest friends to stand by your side in your moment of greatest need, and they all left you alone. You would probably be tempted, as would I, to have a conversation, perhaps a little heated, with these friends. And you would say, I thought we were friends. You might even call into question their love, their, their companionship, might even call into question their integrity, their loyalty. And I rather suspect if you're as human as I am, you would, you would have trouble, you would, even, you would struggle a bit with forgiveness. These are people who are supposed to stand with you and everything you were doing was exactly right. It's not as though they didn't stand with you because you went and went against Scripture, went against God and did your own thing. No, you were on course with the plan of God. There you were doing His will and everyone else, including the world, leaves you alone. But Jesus doesn't respond in that way, does He? I want to notice just a few things briefly with you in the way that Jesus is still dealing with His disciples at this moment in which he knows what they're going to do, he knows what is about to happen, and yet, what does he say? Well, first we need to note that Jesus does begin with what I might call a gentle rebuke, a gentle rebuke. And this takes place actually just before his statement that they'll, they'll leave him alone. He knows they're going to, to leave him. He knows that he'll be alone. But just before he actually says it, there's a gentle rebuke. After all, there you'll notice in verse 25 and following, Jesus says, I've said, this thing, I've said these things to you in figures. The hour is coming when I won't. And, and he begins to explain this. Then his disciples in verse 29 say, ah, ha, ha. Now we got it. Thanks, Jesus. Appreciate it. On board. We believe you. We're there. And Jesus says, really? You now believe? You really want to choose now as your moment of trust? I don't think you appreciate what is about to come. You really don't get it. After all, you guys have struggled to profess credible faith in the past. Time and time again, you have faltered, and I have even pointed out to you that you have little faith. Your confident talk right here does not match your pattern of life. You see, the disciples had not yet learned that what matters is not their faith. What mattered is not their courage. What mattered was Jesus. What mattered is his faithfulness, his courage, his virtue, his righteousness. We exist not because of our own faith, our own work, our own proclamations. Ah, now I get it. Now I understand. It's all fallen in line for me. Now I can say to Jesus, I trust you. I'm following you. I've got it, Jesus. Not at all. It is always the case that Jesus is the one who has you and me. I don't know about you, but I, in, in a former life, when I was young and svelte and sprightly and energetic, I enjoyed mountain climbing. I'd climb anything. I'd also fall off of anything. But I enjoyed climbing things. And one of the things I enjoy is standing on the very edge of things. I don't know why. But just, there's a thrill in it. 
And I enjoy looking down hundreds and hundreds of feet down to whatever may be below. The wind swirling around you, the uncertainty of death, it's fascinating. I absolutely love it. And as I thought about this text, I thought about me doing that. And let's imagine, I've got three boys, as Ryan said. Let's imagine that I take one of my boys with me. I'll take the youngest one. Uh, so that's Edward, and he's nine years old. And so I've got Edward with me, and I'm holding onto his hand because I'm a foolish enough dad that I brought him with me to the edge of a cliff. And let's imagine we're both standing there, and I'm hanging onto his hand very, very tightly because I don't want the wind to blow him off. He's 50 pounds wet. I'm too many pounds dry. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. But I'm holding on to him. And he feels, the, he feels me hanging on, but he's hanging on too. And in that moment, let's imagine my son Edward turns to me and says, Dad, don't worry, I got you. We'd all know, you gotta be kidding me. You've got me, so if I start to go like this, you've got the strength and the weight and everything else to pull me back. I don't think so. And of course, what, I, what would I do? I, you know, I would think, yeah, well, whatever. You know, we'd all smile and think, isn't that cute? He thinks he's got me. That's exactly what's going on here in John's Gospel. Jesus, as it were, is on the precipice of the most monumental event in history in which all of sin will rest upon his shoulders and all of your guilt and mine he will assume upon himself. Talk about being on the precipice of the most incredible thing ever. And Jesus is standing there and he is holding on to his disciples. And he is giving them words of encouragement and words of instruction and he is trying to help them through this. And in that moment there, as they're speaking, what happens? They feel the grip of him holding on, and like my nine-year-old son, they might say, they're essentially saying, don't worry, Jesus, we got you. And what they hadn't understood is no. No, no, no. Jesus is saying to them in a gentle way, though he is, I think, slightly rebuking them, now you believe, guys, you don't get it. I have you. And that's what matters. It's not that you think you've got me. It's not that you think you have enough belief. It's not that you think you have enough faith. It's not that you're trusting enough. It's not that you get it. It's that I get you. And I think it's very important for us to grasp this truth and to never, ever let go of it. Perspective matters. And there's perspective Jesus is giving here in this section of John as he gives his final sermon is, I'm not only doing this for you, but I am not gonna let you go through the whole process. That's the basis for the peace of which Jesus speaks at the very end. Verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me, in me you may have peace. So Jesus offers a gentle rebuke to his disciples. Second, what Jesus does as he's engaging with them at this stage is he, he, he doesn't have any malice or anger or bitterness in what he's saying. So I said, you and I, if we knew that our best friends, our closest friends would, would uh, uh, leave us and abandon us in the moment of our greatest need, we might have a few words. We might feel a little differently. We might want to, have, we might want to say something to them, but no, not Jesus. Again, it's amazing. Jesus knows this, even from the beginning, and yet what do we read? John 13, as we saw a moment ago, we read, Jesus loved his disciples to the end. John 14, Jesus calms their troubled hearts. John 15, Jesus calls them friends, no longer servants. Friends, and yet he knows what they're gonna do. 
In John 16, he says, I'm trying to keep you from falling away. And all of this takes place on the eve of which Jesus is about to assume all the sin of the world. All of this takes place when Jesus will be beaten mercilessly and kicked and punched. All of this takes place when a crown of thorns will be pressed into his head and the blood will flow down his eyes so that he can barely see. All of this takes place before he knows he is going to be made to carry on his whipped back the cross on which he will ultimately hang. He knows all of this is just a few hours away and all of that pales in comparison to the weight of sin that he is about to take upon himself because of you and me. And still, No malice, no anger, no bitterness towards those who belong to him. At that moment, Jesus remained focused on others, not himself. He remained focused on others, not himself. At this moment, Jesus is kind. Jesus is gentle. Jesus is loving. Shame on you and shame on me. We're not like that, are we? We could look at Jesus and say, wow, that is the moment in history where there is the greatest amount of stress and pressure you could possibly imagine. And you and I both know at various points in our lives, stress and pressure. It's February, right now you've got no stress. Wait until April, May. But we all know times, we all have had times, whether it's at, whether it's at, at, at seminary, whether it's in home life, whether it's at work, whether it's an extended family, whatever it is, we've known pressure. And what is it that you and I do so easily? When we are under pressure, when we are under stress, when things are getting really, really hard, we do not say to those around us, how can I serve you? What can I do for you? How might I be a blessing to you this day? No, of course not. We want to let everybody know, do you have any idea how much I've got to do? Do you have any idea how busy I am? Do you have any idea how much I'm going through right now? You just don't get it. You need to figure out me a little better. Thank you very much. You see, we are easily frustrated, easily angered, even bitter against others when the pressure is on. And what's worse is we not only say that in so many different ways, if not explicitly using those words, we not only say that to people around us, but when the pressure's on, without saying it, we tell the same thing to Jesus. Because when the pressure's on, he's usually the first one to get told, could you just move aside for a minute? You see, I've got work to do. Jesus, could you just, could you just step aside for a moment? We might have a meeting later because I've got some studying to do. Jesus, things are really, really difficult right now. Could, you, could, could we meet again maybe tomorrow or the next day? That'd be great, but don't worry, I'll be in church on Sunday, so we'll meet then. And essentially what we do so very easily, without even intending it, in a certain sense, we push Jesus away. And we actually get a little bit ticked off when the Spirit comes and reminds us, what about your God? What about your Savior? And we push that away and think, Jesus, you just don't understand. You don't get it. And sometimes we can begrudge Jesus because he's getting in the way of my productive time. See, Jesus, you need to know between you know, 6 a.m., there's like three of us in the room, right? 6 a.m. and 11 a.m., that's my productive time. For the rest of you unrighteous, between 7 p.m. and midnight. <laughs> and you know that's my most productive time. That's when I'm really, really sharp. 
So that's the time I'm going to give to fill in the blank. Not the time I'm going to give to my Savior. And sometimes there can even be that little bit of bitterness, that little bit of frustration. But what is it that Jesus is saying to us here and to his disciples in John 16? He's saying, I want to give you peace and joy. I want to give you peace and joy. He is the source of peace and joy. You will not find peace in continuing to set Jesus aside. You will not find peace in continuing to say, Jesus, a little bit later, please. We will find peace in Him. We need to take care. You need to take care, and I need to take care, lest we build our lives, our ministries, and our priorities in such a way that we rob ourselves of the peace and joy that only comes through Christ. So Jesus here did not rob himself, nor indeed his disciples, of peace and joy, but instead he points them towards that peace and joy in him. Third thing we notice here is Jesus' confidence in God, despite everything that we've said so far, that the disciples will leave him, they will abandon him, they don't get it, they're self-centered, all that kind of stuff, yet there is a confidence in God. Note there the last sentence in verse 32. We read there that after Jesus says, you'll all go to your own home, he says, yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. The Father is with me. Knowing God makes a difference. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, in what manner, how do I know God? What do I mean by that? Well, you've probably heard this sort of analogy before in some form or fashion, but everybody wants to say to some degree they know the President of the United States, right? And you could have, in this particular version of the analogy, let's imagine there is a political scientist living in California who knows absolutely everything about the President of the United States and knows everything about what goes on in being a President of the United States and knows the history and knows just everything. That is one kind of knowing the President, and it's a legitimate kind of knowing. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a good knowing. It has certain limits, but it's a good knowing. So you've got, this, you've got this political science out in California. He knows the president in, in incredible detail. Then you've got, let's say, you have the, uh, you've got the gardener at the White House. And there you've got the gardener, and, and he and the president have struck up a friendship over the years. And when the president is, is home at the White House, he drops out to the, uh, to the Rose Garden, and he, he visits with the gardener for a bit. And over the years, the two of them have struck up a, a friendship. And they talk about their families, they talk about their worries, they talk about their successes, they talk about their failures, they talk about everything. That gardener has a certain knowledge, has a certain understanding of the president, and it's legitimate. It's good. Then we have the president's wife, who in my example is a political scientist. And so here is a woman who knows all of the history, knows everything about the office, knows all those details that an expert in political science would know, and she knows everything the gardener knows, and she knows him even more intimately. Now, why do I give you that story, that illustration, that analogy? You see, by reading the Word of God, we can be like the political scientist We can know things about God, and those are good things, and we should know those things, and we should pursue those things. By praying, we are like the gardener. We are speaking with God, and that's a good thing, and we should pursue that. But what we must take care to do is to recognize that the best place for us to be is to put that reading of the Word of God and that praying through the Word of God together so that we might become His bride. 
we might become truly the church of Jesus Christ and the Christians that we were intended to be, that we would know God fully, completely, and intimately. And this is the kind of knowledge that Jesus has of his Father, and it is not just for him. It is for you and me. We need to have that kind of intimate, close, personal knowledge of our God. Because when we do, and those moments come when all appear to have abandoned us, we, like Jesus, can say, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Fourth, we notice here, I think what I see in verse, uh, verse 32 is forgiveness. We not only see confidence in God, we not only see uh, no malice uh, or, or anger, we see a little bit of rebuke, but fourth, we see forgiveness. Do you notice what Jesus says there in verse 33? In me, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Don't miss the fact that Jesus is promising peace to men who he's just told will fail him. Jesus knows the disciples are weak, he knows they are fickle, which is why the peace he offers is not like any other peace that's ever been known. Jesus doesn't say, I wish you peace. Jesus doesn't say, I hope you find peace. Jesus doesn't say, work hard for peace. Jesus says, the peace you need is in me because Jesus knows that outside of him, peace is impossible and inside of you and me, peace is impossible. The only place we'll find peace is in Christ, in him. And this means that Jesus' peace doesn't come when the storm is over, when the difficulty is over. Jesus' peace is what endures through absolutely everything. But only this kind of peace, this kind of peace can only be had in his presence. It matters that you walk with Christ. It absolutely matters that you walk with Christ. Because apart from being in his presence, you can never, ever know the peace and joy that he is speaking about here and that he wants you to have. It is vital that we recognize that Jesus brings a peace that forgives sin, that sets aside all of those iniquities because of his shed blood on the cross so that he can draw you to himself. I wish that you would have, I long that you would have, I'm telling you, you can have peace in me. And fifth and finally, we see here that Jesus gives hope. What is the last thing he says in chapter 16? He says, I have overcome the world. The victory is Jesus. It is his, but it also belongs to you and me. And sometimes peace can feel like it's elusive. Sometimes joy feels like it's distant. But I would urge you to memorize that statement that Jesus made. I have overcome the world. Because the world will do everything it can. The world, the flesh, and the devil will do everything possible to try and convince you he really hasn't overcome the world. Have you read the newspaper? He really hasn't overcome the world. Did you watch the news? He really hasn't overcome the world. Have you seen what's going on in your family? No, I have overcome 
the world. And I love the fact that Jesus is speaking here in the past tense when his death and resurrection is still future. It is absolutely certain without a shadow of a doubt that his power is greater than the world, the flesh, and the devil. Our hope is not that we'll get better and make the world better over time. Jesus is telling his disciples here and he's telling you and me, our hope is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do not set him aside. Do not push him away. Do not tell him you're too stressed, too pressured, and too busy. But as Peter says, follow in his footsteps. And as you do, recognize the love, the peace, the joy that he gives and how you can be an instrument of that to others. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you lead us and guide us, but we also thank you most especially that you forgive us. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would work in our hearts and minds that not one of us this day would leave this place without having been changed, changed by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit, changed by our Savior Jesus Christ and the application of his redemption to our hearts, changed by our wonderful and holy God, who through love desires that we should be like him, holy, righteous, and blameless, both now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.